expect to be here in Birmingham. Um, and the only thing I know about you is chids. <laughs> so I'm assuming that you're a wonderful church. <laughs> because she's a friend of my daughter's. So that makes me really happy. That just made my day to see chids. I didn't know she was here. So um, I am... I, I don't know you, so you probably don't know me, so I'll tell you just a little bit about me and why I'm in Birmingham, which is very fascinating. Um, I was a minister in the ICOC, well, still am, but I served from 1991 until two years ago, and I'm going to tell you that story with what happened, but I am currently a full-time PhD student working in Christian spirituality. And I wrote a paper. How many of you know what a Quaker is? Quakers. Did you know that you have the world-renowned Center for Quaker Studies in your town? Okay. And the top Quaker scholar on the planet runs that. So I'm actually here for the 25th celebration of Quaker Scholar Studies and I just this afternoon presented an academic paper on a Quaker mystic named Thomas Kelly. Have any of you ever read A Testament of Devotion? Do we have a mic that is, this one's going out. Wait, maybe where battery's not? I'll take another one. Hey, or I can just yell really loud. Has anyone ever read A Testament of Devotion? No. It's a book that you want to put on your reading list. Um, we'll try that one. Yes, sir. So, okay. So the really good news after I presented at the conference is they're writing a new book on Quaker, um, kind of what's happening in in the Quaker studies world right now. And one of the editors came to me and asked if my paper could be a chapter in their new book. So that's pretty exciting. So uh, not that you're going to find your way into a Quaker studies book. But anyway, (laughs) so what I'm actually, I'm not going to talk about faith tonight, actually. Roger, he didn't lie to you. He just was misinformed. (laughs) I'm going to talk about fear. And I'm going to talk about fear when it comes to faith. So, in a way, I'm going to talk about faith. Um, But I want to give you, you know, a little bit of story as I'm doing this about what's happened in in my life. If this works, let's see if we get this to work. Oh, man. It's too far away. I'm going to need somebody either to give me a remote. Can you plug one into my computer? Or can someone in the meantime advance slides for me? Anyone? This one helped you. Okay. So that's a picture of my wife and I when we the night before we got married in March twenty first, nineteen ninety two. We were interns of the church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. That's why I was converted. I was a student studying civil engineering, and we got married after we'd been interns. You know how it is in smaller churches. You know you kind of find each other in this church and. It's pretty awesome. So we've been married now for, what is that, 27 years? Uh, we worked together for our whole life in ministry. We were in Minneapolis, then we got asked to move to Chicago. We spent 15 years in Chicago, and then we had, which I'll tell you about as well, uh, a spirit-moving ex- experience that took us to Africa. So we spent four years in Africa, and then we went back to the United States because my oldest daughter, Hannah, graduated from high school, and so we had to go back for university, and so we landed in San Antonio. So now I live in San Antonio. Um, You know, this is always fun. Let me help you for a second. Come on, Dave. Okay. So our dream when we got married was that we always wanted to have a daughter of our own. Or we didn't actually say a daughter. We wanted to have a child of our own. And then we wanted to adopt a little girl from India. And we specifically did want a little girl from India. And so uh, these are my girls a long time ago. Uh, so Hannah uh, on the right, we had Hannah biologically. And then we started the process of adoption. Maddie... On the left was born in 1997 in New Delhi, India, and so we got her in 1998. So she's now 21, Hannah's now 23. This is a picture of Hannah's wedding two years ago. 
So we uh, we just they actually just celebrated their two year anniversary, and so we now uh, have a son-in-law who's Mexican. He's on the border of Texas and Mexico. It's been a wonderful addition to the family. So Hannah and Tacho now serve in the full time ministry there in San Antonio in the campus ministry, and Madeline just finished um, university. And so we're waiting to figure out what's going to happen next with her. So that's our family. So here's what we're going to do tonight. If you're a note taker, this is the one thing you want to make sure you write down. I want to talk to you tonight about a tension that exists in our Christian spirituality. And that is this tension of God saying to you, I love you. Now do something about it. And that tension is one of the most difficult things that we live and that we experience in our Christianity. So if you were to hear these two messages, one, you know, being secure in the in God saying I love you, that challenge of being secure in that message is a really important part of our Christianity, right? But then the, the other part is equally important. Do something with that love. Go and love others. Because our Christian faith really can only be expressed when we do something with it. Or that is really God's intent, right? So that, that tension is what we're going to talk a little bit about. And in those messages, how does fear come to play? And then we're going to talk about there's two ways that we are sent by the Spirit to act on that love. One is voluntary, meaning you have a choice because you hear the Spirit moving you. You can choose to say yes or no. But we often also have involuntary calls of the Spirit. And if anyone has ever been really sick or had something happen to them that they weren't counting on or struggled with mental illness or have had any struggles like that, you know what I'm talking about, about involuntary calls. We're going to talk a little bit about that. So that's the framework we're going to work from tonight. God's two messages that we have to hold in tension as Christians. The voluntary call of the Spirit, the involuntary call, and how we deal with fear in all of that. Okay? That make sense? Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about this first message. I love you. You're in stereo now. This is awesome. This one. Give it a try. <laughs> Uh, okay. Yeah. Well, it's the third one. I mean, you're in the whole building. You're in the toilets. You're everywhere. I'm in the toilets. Everywhere. Now I gotta say, after 27 years of preaching, it's the first time I've been told. I'm in the toilets. Okay. I love you too. Uh, so, so let, let's think about this message. I love you. From the very beginning of the Bible narrative, in the Garden of Eden, God walked with us. And His intent in the Garden was to communicate, I love you, I'm with you. When you look at the whole history of Scripture, God has been working to get that message through to us. I love you. When you look at creation, to me, this is one of the many, many ways that God says, I love you. In the grand, in the obscure, in the colorful, and in the minute. I mean, one of the things that's really neat about today's world that we live in is we get to understand what a hundred years ago they didn't understand. What's going on in that drop of water? There's a whole universe in there. That's just the way God communicates, right? One of my favorite ways that God communicates His presence is this idea of Shekinah. You ever heard of Shekinah? So Shekinah is a Hebrew word which means presence. It's God's presence with His people. God's dwelling presence. The, the dwelling or the settling of the divine presence of God. So this idea of Shekinah was God's presence in the garden. When Moses sees the burning bush, what does he see? God's presence. Shekinah. But when we look at this story of building the tabernacle, 
when God tells Moses, here's exactly how I want you to build it, and he goes, because Moses says, look, I've got all these people out here in the desert. I'm not going anywhere, God, if you're not going with us, right? And what does God do? God says, I myself will go along to give you rest. And Moses replies, if you're not going, don't make us leave. So God makes a physical manifestation of his presence in the tabernacle. And he has Moses build this tabernacle. And when the, the blessing upon the tabernacle is given, the cloud covers the tent of meeting. The glory of the Lord fills the tabernacle. And it says Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And this presence, God's divine Shekinah, filled the tabernacle. And what's amazing about this idea is that when God had the camp set up with all 12 nations, 12 tribes surrounding the tabernacle, no matter where you were in camp, whether you were a Danite, a Levite, or from the tribe of Issachar, you could look and see the presence of God. Why? Because God was telling us, I love you and I'm with you. So then, you know, of course, the tabernacle travels. We go into, you know, the promised land. And David sets it on his heart to build a permanent place for the Lord. Because he wants to make sure that God's not going anywhere, right? You can't have God in a tent. I mean, you can leave. So we need God in a temple. And if you know, you know, the Old Testament, and I'll just briefly show this. When they dedicated the first temple, the same thing happens as the priest Devotes, devotes the temple and says the cloud filled the house of the Lord so the priest could no longer minister because of the presence, the Shekinah. God saying, I'm with you and I love you. Okay? So the power of when the book of John, you know, gets written and Jesus comes to be here amongst us. What's so powerful about this idea of the divine coming, the incarnation, you know what that means? The incarnate means in flesh. The enfleshment of God. This divine presence becomes like us in flesh to be here with us. Why? Because he wanted to tell us, I love you. And this passage in John 1 is so amazing. When it says the word became flesh, that's the incarnation, and made his, you see the, the connection, the dwelling, in the Greek, what that actually can be translated into is he tabernacled amongst us. So to understand God's presence in the tabernacle, God's presence in the Holy of Holies, God's presence in Jesus Christ, he came and he tabernacled amongst us, saying, I love you. Um, this is one of my favorite expressions that's captured in Matthew's Gospel. Come to me, all of you who labor and are burdened. Have you ever been there? Yeah. And I will give you rest. It's, isn't it amazing how we often mix up the mission of the church and the message of Jesus? The message of Jesus is, come and I will give you rest. Now, I'm not taking away from the mission. We're going to get to that. But Jesus' primary message to us is, I will give you rest if you're weary and burdened. For I am meek and humble of heart. You will find rest for yourselves. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Again, we get that mixed up because we start looking at Christianity as some sort of righteous ladder to climb. Like, I've got to be good enough or do enough or live enough in order that I am. And Jesus doesn't say any of that. That's not Jesus. That's what we often do to Christianity, but that's not Jesus. So that message, I love you, why would that message create fear in us? Have you ever felt afraid of God's love? Have you ever had someone tell you I love you and it brought up fear? I remember when I was first met in 1990, reached out to study the Bible, this idea that everything I've done Everything I've thought is forgiven and God loves me. Why is that so frightening? It's vulnerable. That means I have to completely open myself to God. That's scary. 
And I remember even with the disciples, you know, early on, I was 20 years old when I was converted, but I remember early on when, you know, then I blow it six months later or two days later or then two days after the blowing of the month, six months later. I mean, you know, what? when you start learning to confess sin, you're, wait, I'm confessing the same sin I confessed last week and I'm still confessing the same sin 25 years later. And have you ever, like, had that, like, but, but am I still loved? Am I still for yes? I love you. That's the message. None of that changes based on your piety. So it takes us a while to get that down, and there's a lot of fear that comes with that. So let's say we hold that in one hand, that tension of accepting God's love and, and dealing with our own fear. The second message is also important, which is love. Now, in a lot of the major passages of Scripture, these messages go hand in hand. Consider the great commandments, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. So in other words, the whole Bible is about this tension of accepting God's love and giving God's love. But it also comes out in what's the other great? The great commandment and then the great commission, right? Same thing is there. The same message is there. Um, go make disciples. So the go is go love. Love the world. But what's the end of this one? And I will be with you always. Right? So the same I love you, go love is there. I love the way John articulates this in 1 John. He says we love because he first loved us. In other words, we have something to give because it's been given to us. But John goes as far as to say, you can't really say you love God unless you're loving others. So just accepting the love of God but doing nothing with it is a farce. It's not Christian. That's the nature of our faith. We hold them in tension. So... I want to help us to think about something, and I want I want to tease an idea out here that may be a little it may stretch you a little bit. What does it mean for us to bring the kingdom of God to earth, to this planet, to this world? What does that mean? Well, certainly I think it means we go make disciples, right? But is that it? Do we just go make disciples and then whatever? Or is bringing the kingdom of God here more? I would argue that the kingdom of God being fulfilled on this earth requires every part of us. And I would argue that it comes out in every aspect of us. And I would argue that in order for God's kingdom to really find fulfillment on this earth, it's going to require a lot more of us. Because the message, I love you, that comes from God has to come out outside of just the religious, evangelical outreach. It's got to come out in the way that we interact with each other. It's certainly got to come out in the way that we interact with our neighbors. It has to come out in the way we behave in the workplace or in the schools that we live in. Because if the kingdom of God really is about God saying, I love you, our love has to grow and be manifold in all kinds of ways beyond just sharing our faith. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things we've got to grow in is a very young reform movement, the ICOC. We are a very young, baby Christian reform movement. We've been around for 40 years. In the Christian world, we're babies. What's wonderful about being a young Christian reform movement is that we had a singleness of message that helped us to build churches all over the world. But see, we're in a different place now. If we don't grow up, we will not continue to thrive. And the message, go make disciples, will always be one of the messages. But we've got to mature. And the kingdom of God being fulfilled through us has to mean more. Would you agree with that? Does that produce fear? I mean, that call is wonderful, but it's challenging. And when the Spirit calls you, 
And this is, I think, another aspect of us growing up. That the Spirit doesn't just speak to us only through our church leaders. The Spirit speaks to every one of us individually in our own relationship with God. And sometimes that Spirit calls us to do things that are not on the hearts of other people. It calls us to do things that are different than those around us. And I'll get to that in a little bit. So that call can be voluntary, as I'll explain, or involuntary. So how does the Spirit call? Let's talk a little bit about that. This is an open question. How does the Spirit speak to us? And let me just take one off the table that we all agree on, I think. God's Spirit speaks through our leaders. Amen? Amen. Okay, I just want to make sure we all agree on that one. I mean, that's an important one because it's true. God's Spirit speaks through our leaders. But how else does God's Spirit speak to you as an individual? Let me do just for hands so we can hear each other. Yes? Through our quiet times, our prayer times. So through our personal intimacy with God, through Scripture, through prayer. Now there's a lot of, we could spend we could spend an hour talking just about that. We don't have time, but you're right. Okay? Okay, circumstances. Sometimes God speaks to us through things we experience, whether planned or unplanned. Which we'll get to the involuntary part in a minute. How else does God's Spirit speak? Open doors, close doors. Love that one. God opens doors and He closes doors. Mm-hmm. We'll talk about that one in a little bit. Well, right. Sometimes God speaks to us. And, and you know, we're not always familiar or comfortable with the language of a voice. But our conscience really is a voice. Sometimes we hear, maybe not an audible hearing, but an internal hearing. Sometimes we feel... Right? I mean, I'm going to tell you about an experience I had in a minute where I felt the hand of God. Okay? How else does the Spirit speak? Now we? Through friends. Through friends? Absolutely. Through each other. I mean, some, whether that be a Bible talk leader or an evangelist or a neighbor or a big Christian or a spouse or a child. Yeah. God speaks through people. Okay? So, the Spirit calls us in many different ways. So, voluntarily, I want to tell you about October 2009 um, and what happened that sent me on an interesting path to Africa. My wife and I had been in the ministry for 15 years in Chicago. I just finished my master's degree in Bible and ministry. Um, we had devoted our ministry work to families. We had started in 1999 working with teenagers in Chicago. Um, we were appointed evangelists and we led a region for a while, but then the church leader asked if Beth and I would work with teenagers. And I thought he was crazy. I, I, teenagers scared me out of my mind. I, my kids were two and four years old. I was old enough to not be cool anymore but young enough to not have raised teenagers, so it was kind of frightening working with teens. But we found a passion working with teenagers, and we ended up devoting our whole ministry life to what became youth and family ministry. So in 2009, I finished my master's degree. We just hosted an international conference in Chicago on youth and family ministry, and we went to a leadership conference in Denver of all of our leaders from around the world, And on the first day of the conference, I got asked if I would start chairing our International Committee on Youth and Family Ministry. And I said, great. So the first thing I did is I set up appointments with church leaders from around our fellowship around the world. From South Africa to India, all over. And I got with Justin and Irene Renton on Thursday morning. And they lead the church in, does anyone know? Yes, yeah, Johannesburg, South Africa, right? So we had a wonderful time, we connected quickly, but we asked the question, how are things going with your families in the church? And Justin said, well, actually, not well. We have, this is 2009, so this is six years after our, whatever you decide to call it. Um, he said, he said, we have in the church, we have 150 teenagers. We have only four of them that want anything to do with their parents' faith, that want to be disciples. Um, it's been this way since 2003. It's really, we're desperate. We, we're in rough shape. And so, you know, that was a heartbreaking appointment. 
So we continued meeting with the church leaders from you know India and other places. Well, Sunday morning comes around. We're sitting in church. There's 3,000 disciples there. And I'm in the middle of the auditorium, and everybody's seated, and it's communion. And you know how we take communion, right? It's, we're silent during the time of reflection. And I just, there was something really wrong. And my wife, like, it, it was so evident, I didn't realize this, but my wife's like, what is wrong with you? And I just, I just started praying. I, God, I can't stop thinking about Johannesburg. What are you telling me? I don't understand this, but I felt that. Wait, right? And so I prayed, God, if you're telling me that you want me to move to South Africa, I need you to make it abundantly clear. And I'm going to stand up, I'm going to walk outside and open the door. And if I bump into Justin Renton outside, I'm going to ask him what he thinks about the idea. So I get up and I walk out. My wife's looking at me strange. And I open the door and it bumps into Justin Renton. I'm going to say, and I said, Justin, so he's with Irene, and Irene said, I'll, you know, I'll just step inside. I said, I said, this may sound crazy. Maybe I had a bad breakfast. I don't know, but I just can't stop thinking about your situation. I feel like God is pushing on me to ask you whether we should come and help you in South Africa. And he looked at me stunned, and he said, you're not going to believe this. When my wife and I got on the airplane in Johannesburg, we held hands and prayed out loud, that God would put a burden so strongly on someone's heart to help the families in South Africa that they would come and ask us if they could move to help us in Johannesburg. And they would stare at each other. What do we do with this? So he goes and he taps on his wife's shoulder and he says, Irene, God just answered our prayer and he explained. Irene starts dancing. Jumping, screaming, the pockets are moving to Johannesburg. I'm like, I haven't talked about my wife. So, you know, so I, we we leave church. My wife's like, what was going on? I tell her the whole story, and if you knew my wife, you'd know how uncharacteristic this is. She says, well, then I guess we need to move to Johannesburg. <laughs> okay. So through a series, I can't remember my slides. Okay, yeah. So so does do these kind of calls? Produce fear. I mean, you name it, right? My girls were 12 and 14 years old. The first stories out of almost everyone's mouth about Johannesburg was how bad the rape and violence was in Johannesburg. Why would you move your daughters at 12 and 14 to Johannesburg, South Africa? Financially, we owned a house in, in Chicago during the, the, the markets crashing. Um, I mean, we're not in a great financial place. My kids are in the middle of school. How are we going to do this? Our relationships, you know how we're all paired up with different ministries around the world? You know who Chicago's paired up with? The Ukraine. (laughs) And when I went back and I told the church leaders, this is what I'm thinking about doing, they looked at me like, why don't you just, if you want to get out of here, go to Ukraine. I mean, we have no way of getting you to Africa. There's no missions, money, there's no nothing. And so we figured out how much money it would cost to keep American insurance to educate my kids in English because the other options were Zulu and Afrikaans and to um, leave my house with a renter. And I'm like looking at this number, I'm like, there's just no way. And so this is in November. So we decide we're going to go visit. We go visit. And the first prayer I prayed, open and close doors. I said, I prayed, okay, God, if this is really your will, I need all four of us to unanimously agree. We're going to decide together as a family. If one of us doesn't want to go, we're not going. We get on a plane, we go there, and we visit. First thing they do is they take us to a land. These are my girls, 12 and 14, holding a, yes, a tiger cub. And so, you know, we have this amazing time, and um, we get on the airplane to come home. And I'm sitting there, and I'm praying in my journal, and my daughter Hannah hands me a piece of paper. And there was a picture she had drawn on the continent of Africa, and there was a piece of a puzzle missing out of the continent, and off to the side, the piece of the puzzle was there, and it had our name, Apoctas, and underneath it said, the missing piece of Africa. So I'm like, okay, I just hands on board. Uh, so Maddie, I said, what about you? And she goes, yeah, let's go. Well, I didn't know at the time it was because of a boy, but that's another story. So we end up coming back, 
the elders said, we'll give you six weeks to make a decision. By December 31st, please tell us if you're staying or you're going. So we have this number, this financial number. I'm like, I have no idea how that's going to happen. But I told Michael Tolliver and a couple other people, and we told the church in Johannesburg, this is what it's going to take, and God's going to have to... So by December 31st, I got a phone call on December 31st from Mike Tolliver. He says, Dave, we've raised the exact money that you need to go, and we made the decision at the last moment to move to South Africa. We were on a plane in April, and we moved for four years. Sometimes God's call is clear, and God is pushing you, and you have a choice, right? And we had amazing experiences. I mean, I visited 11 African countries and got to see lemurs and really close-up encounters with all kinds of fun animals. My favorite experience was with a seven-month-old lion, uh, or sorry, tiger. tiger. Um, if you can see his paw on my shoulders, you see his claws. You have no idea how powerful he was, but he was playful. And I'm standing here, my heart's beating a thousand miles. But anyway, it was a lot of fun. So this is us when we moved back to, to San Antonio, or moved to San Antonio, Texas. And when I look back, it was the most extreme, painful. We shed the most tears. My daughter, my youngest, cried for almost two years. My wife cried for about six months. Um, life-changing. Never would do it any other way. Experience. Because that's how God works. When he moves, when he calls, he blesses. And he challenges you to your core. But he blesses. So what about involuntary? Have you ever felt an involuntary call? Something where God said no, or let me give you a debilitating something um, that overwhelmed you, that you didn't think you could handle, and you lost something? You name it. We could make a list of all the ways that our faith has turned out that we never thought it would. The involuntary call of the Spirit. God saying, this is the direction I want you to go. So, in 2016, I told Roger, I had no idea his country of origin was the cause of my dismay. <laughs> Where is Roger? Did he leave? Hide Hide Still haven't figured out if I like you. I'll tell you, you'll find out why. No, it has nothing to do with gun. I do love you. I don't have to love I do, but I like you too. I like you and I love you. There is a distinction, but I appreciate that. I do like you. So, we moved back to Texas after this wonderful experience. I built these training academies in Africa. We're traveling back and forth. I'm flying. We had reached this big conference in the United States in uh, a couple months before this, and, and in West Africa, we had a big conference, a West African summit, and so it was in Ghana, and so I fly to Ghana, and I mean, life was just full and busy and crazy, and I'm in Ghana, and we do the leadership conference, and I get on an airplane to come home, and something was broken in me, and I sent a message to my wife, I said, I don't know what's wrong, but I feel broken inside me. I got home, got off the plane, dumped my suitcase, and laid in bed for days. I've never struggled with depression, but I was deeply depressed. And I, I couldn't unpack my suitcase, I couldn't look at email, I didn't want to talk to anybody. Fortunately, Mike Tolliver, who led the church, gave me three months, he said, just take three months off, see a doctor, figure out what's going on. I saw a psychiatrist, I saw a counselor, um, and I, I was quickly diagnosed with four things. I would a general depression, Disorder, general anxiety disorder, ADHD, which all my friends said, thank you, you finally have a diagnosis. <laughs> and I had sleep deprivation, I wasn't sleeping. And so those four things added up to just a midlife crash, a midlife crisis. So I saw a counselor, I started seeing psychiatrists, I got put on a lot of different medications, one for each of my four ailments, and then, of course, if you've ever had any challenges to your mental health, you know there's no such thing as one pill that you're given and everything just starts working out okay. You take a pill, it doesn't work, you try something else. Uh, a couple months later, this is what my bedside looked like. Um, that was February 2017. And I, I was, it was dark. It was a dark, dark, dark time. I didn't know what I felt, what I thought, what I believed. I just was in a bad place. And it's scary. What was scary, not just for me, it's really scary for the spouse. I mean, my wife just 
didn't know what to do. So I see a counselor. And I tell the counselor for 45 minutes, here's what's going on in my life, and I explain. And he looks at me after 45 minutes and he just says, you are having a spiritual midlife crisis. I want you to read a book by a man named Richard Rohr called Falling Upward. I said, okay. So I went and bought the book. I started reading. It's about midlife spirituality and, and it's great and it's, it's fantastic. So I started doing some soul searching. What is God trying to teach me in this? What's going on with me spiritually? Why have I run out of gas? And I started realizing for me what brings me energy is study. So I, started, I get online I start looking for schools that have PhD programs but I specifically want a PhD program in something that will take me deeper. So I'm searching and I find this school in my backyard in San Antonio, five miles from my house, that offers a PhD in spirituality. The only one in the United States. Okay? Call the school, make an appointment, it's a Catholic seminary. I go down and I have an appointment with the associate dean, one of the students, one of the professors who happens to be from Cambridge, and... I love the way they talked. I love the way you talked. <laughs> anyway, so we're sitting and we're having this conversation. By the way, you, you sound smarter. <laughs> just, I mean, there's something about the British accent. It's just, it's, anyway, um, so we're having this conversation, and he... How am I doing? Oh, we're good. So we're having this conversation, and... After this meeting, you know, they tell me the PhD program is a five to six year full time study program. I'm like, well, I have a job. I'm a minute. Well, no, you can't do that. You'd have to quit your job for five or six years to do this. So, well, that was fun. Um, so, I, I afterwards I pulled this professor aside and I said, look, I'm having kind of a personal sabbatical. If you were needing personal spiritual revival, what would you read? And he said, I'd read anything by Ron Wolheiser. This is great. Never heard of Ron Rollheiser. So I go and I order Ron Rollheiser books on Amazon. So now I'm reading Richard Rohr Falling Upward, and I find this book that I start reading by Rollheiser called Sacred Fire. And I'm, I'm I'm reading this book. I'm like, this is amazing. Who is this guy? I flip over the jacket and cut in the back. He's the president of the School of Oblate of Theology, which is the one I was just at in San Antonio, Texas. So I go down the next day and I knock on his door. And I said, let me tell you my story. He said, I got ten minutes. So I tell him real quick what's going on. I said, your book brought me here. It's transforming me. He goes, I'm teaching a class on John of the Cross. Why don't you come and sit in? So the first night, is it, have you ever heard of St. John of the Cross? No. He's a 16th century Carmelite monk who writes about the dark night of the soul. So the first night I sit in this class and he's telling us about the dark night of the soul. <laughs> this is crazy. And at the end of the class he says, so I wrote a book called Sacred Fire about the dark night of the soul. I'm like, yeah, that's the book I'm reading. And he said, my contemporary Richard Rohr also wrote a book about the same concept called Falling Upward. I'm like, this is crazy. <laughs> so I sit there for uh, the whole term and then he says, you need to sit in one of my PhD seminars and I sit through that one and at one of the classes... He had his PhD students each take turns presenting, and I asked if I could present. He said yes, and afterwards he said, I want you to come and study here full time. This is what you need to be doing. So same thing. Like, what do you do with that, right? How do I pay to survive? How do we take care of insurance? And through a series of more prayers, God opened all the doors and provided everything we needed, and we resigned from ministry so that I could be a full-time PhD student through an involuntary call. And it's really in those dark nights that I think God sometimes speaks the loudest. Well, my fears, almost the same. Financially, my support network. I mean, I was used to being in the ministry. I was used to hanging out with people all the time. I was So that completely changed. And, and so the question everybody asks me, so when you finish your PhD, what are you going to do? I have no idea. <laughs> To this day, I have no idea. So you can pray about that one for me. Um, lots of fears with those involuntary calls. So how do we respond when God calls us through His Spirit in ways that maybe other people don't see, hear, think, feel? Have you ever had that happen? Yeah. You feel called to see the kingdom of God fulfilled in you 
some way that's different. I mean, nobody stands up with the pulpit and says, some of you need to quit your jobs and go study for six years. You don't hear those things from the pulpit, and yet the Spirit called me there. So what do we do with that? We have a choice when we face these fears. And I'm going to just share with you three things that, that help me. Okay? Um, how I process my fears. You may get up here, you would have a different list. First thing I do is I pray. I pray, I pray, I pray, I pray, I pray. Why prayer? You know, we have, a lot of times you've been around a church for a while, you have, why do we pray? There's a lot of reasons why we pray. But when we're in crisis, when we feel fear, we pray because, first of all, it helps us get our eyes on God. And off ourselves. We pray because it helps us to remember that God can. What can He do? Yes. God just can. He can fix you. He can fix your situation. He can steer you where He wants you. He can. God opens and closes doors. One of my most favorite prayers now in my life, the last 10, 15 years. God, if this is where you want me to go, open that door or close it. I just need to know. I'll go if I know it's you. Right? And prayer helps us to choose love over fear. So prayer is a big thing for me. Uh, scripture is a big thing for me. I know that's a really important part of our culture. It should be a big thing for you. Scripture is something we should be turning to, not only on a daily basis just for that normal feeding, but in crisis, in need, to see God's character, to see and be reminded of His promises, His faithfulness. His, um, I mean, it's just amazing. But you know, you may not understand that last word, His didactic passages, His teaching passages. I mean, there's passages like Romans 4 that says, Abraham, in faith, faced the facts that his body was as good as dead. I mean, you just got to go, oh man, that's awesome. He was called to do something that was physically impossible. But God is faithful beyond what we see. Scripture is really important in those fearful moments. And fellowship. We're so blessed to have what we have. And as I study all these Christian traditions, and I look at spirituality, and I study mysticism, and I, I, I'm speaking at this Quaker Scholars Conference. I mean, I walk into this Quaker Scholars Conference, and it's nice, but it's not this. And I'm not down on the Quakers. I'm saying we have something special. You don't know me. I don't know you, but you know what we have? This connection through an understanding of what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross and a commitment to that resurrected life that makes us family. And I walk in the door and you treat me as if you've known me for 10 years. Well, not some of you. One of you told me I'm in the toilet. But we're family. We've never met. Fellowship gives us perspective. It helps us because we have partners. We need partners in what we're doing. Of course, we get a lot of advice. Sometimes it doesn't agree. When we call people to move to Africa, I make columns. 50% said yes, 50% said no. That wasn't going to be the answer. So there's other methods. But we still need a lot of advice. And we need encouragement. Don't you need encouragement? I mean, one of the things I find myself doing more as I get older is when I walk in the door, I just used to look around the fellowship and find ways to tell people how awesome they are. Because we need to hear it. I need to hear how awesome I am. Not because I just need my ego stroke, because Satan's beating me down all the time. Because right now, I spend 12 hours a day in a basement reading. So when I come up for air and talk to people, I like to be encouraged. And I know you feel that way. Right? So how do we respond? We can say yes, we can say no when God's Spirit calls him to the voluntary ones. Why do we say yes? Why not no? What's the consequence? Or how can fear hurt us if we just say no to God's Spirit? It limits us. It hurts us. I could have said no to Africa. I'm so glad I didn't. I could have said no to the call to go to school. I'm so glad I didn't. Because a lot of times when we don't say yes to God... 
It's because we don't feel adequate, but we then miss out. Yeah. And I want to tell you one last story. Do I have time for one last story? I do. Yeah. Okay, it's my favorite story anyway. Okay. You ever felt really inadequate for a call? Yeah. Like, this is what's expected of you, but you go, how can I do that? Yeah. So, our last year in South Africa, we had a family that had a condo up in the mountains, and they gave us a timeshare week at their timeshare. So we go, beautiful place. We walk in the front door to check in. We had all our food. We were going to you know, settle in for the week. And the woman sitting behind the desk, my girls were behind me, wife, two girls. Woman at the front desk says, okay, here's your key. Here's your, now let me give you some rules. We have a lot of baboons up here. And we have a lot of monkeys up here. I said, okay, great. And she said, okay, so rules with the baboons. Keep your food, put it away. Close your windows when you leave. The door has a second door when you go in. So there's a normal door and there's like a prison gate door. Mm-hmm. And then the prison gate has a latch. So don't just close the prison gate. You need to latch it because they can open both doors. Wow. Okay. <laughs> she goes, and one more thing. Yes. Baboons aren't afraid of women. Okay. And they're also not afraid of men of smaller stature. Okay. So, be careful. Okay. So, have you ever seen a baboon? Yes. Baboons are, you know, I took a lot of photos when I was in Africa. Uh, that's one of the photos I took. Baboons, are the, they, they stand about this tall. They're thieves. All right, they will take anything that they can from, and they're not afraid of much. So there's a picture of a baboon. I, I took a photo of stealing a loaf of bread. Um, they're pretty ferocious, right? So we go settle in, put the food away. My wife and my daughter go for a walk. My youngest daughter goes out to the balcony to read a book behind the glass door, and I go to shower. And I get out of the shower, and I hear the most absurd, crazy noises in my kitchen. <laughs> oh, dear. I wrap a towel around me, and I peek out. There are eight baboons in my kitchen. <laughs> Two or three baboons are on the counters, rifling through the cupboards, taking everything they can, Ripping open the pasta, spilling it with bread, and just rip everything open and pass it to the buddies. One, there's a number of them on the ground. One is standing in the middle of the kitchen table, receiving food, <laughs> eating and poofing at the same time. And I'm like, I mean, you know, your heart just starts... Racing. What am I going to do? Not afraid of a man of small size. So, I get out my tippy toes, puff out my chest, big deep voice, get out! And they just kind of slowly and they all look at me. And they look at each other. They decide to gather all the food. So they start gathering the food, passing it around, and slowly trot out of my house, pooping all the way out. And I'm standing there in shock. My food is scattered around the house. There's baboon poo everywhere. I'm just, I mean, you ever felt inadequate? It's amazing how God works in our inadequacy. Through us. In us. And I, I, I love that story because God just still works when we feel inadequate. Um, and I, I just, more than anything tonight, not knowing you personally, not knowing what's going on in your life, if there's anything I can encourage you, my brothers and sisters, in Birmingham and Leicester is that in the midst of God's call, in the middle of all that you're doing to be a Christian, with all the fears that come up in your life, God will provide and see you through. 
That message, I love you, never changes. And sometimes as older Christians, we just have to double down and trust it when we don't feel it, fight for it to understand it. But we have to remember that tension of, I love you, now go love. There's two books, if you're a reader, that I would encourage you to read. Have you ever read Practicing the Presence of God? Anyone? Very simple book written by a 17th century Carmelite monk who fixed shoes for a living. He sat in the monastery repairing sandals. He was not educated. But he understood something. That if I, every moment of every day, can practice the fact that God's with me, He loves me, and I can practice His presence, it will transform me. And in this book, he doesn't even, he doesn't write the book, he writes letters to friends encouraging them to just practice the presence of God and help to transform them. I mean, you can read this thing in an hour or two. But if you practice what he teaches, it'll transform you. 300 years later, who I already talked to you about, Thomas Kelly, is called the Brother Lawrence of our day. He was a Quaker mystic who pursued a PhD in philosophy and then a second PhD in philosophy at Harvard. And he had a mental health crisis on the day of his defense and they didn't give him his, his PhD. And he went into a depression. And he had a spiritual experience that transformed him and he started writing. And this is the result of that writing. It's also a small book. It's five essays. Harper Brothers in 1941 sent a letter to him to say, we'd like to publish your writings. And on that day he said to his wife, today's going to be the greatest day of my life. And that afternoon when he was doing the dishes, he had a massive heart attack and died. And what we have left in this book is the beginning of what he started writing for Harper Brothers and four other essays that are some of the most profound, deep, spiritual concept of practicing the reality that God lives inside of every one of us. And if we can hold on to that, it will transform us. So, it's great to be with you. And thank you for your patience. And three microphones. And for those of you in the restroom who also heard me, it's great to be with you too. And uh, have a great night.